So glad you're here. Welcome, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. It's great to see you. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it's so good to have you back. Uh, welcome, and especially if you're tuning in via live stream, uh, we're glad that you're here and looking forward to, to seeing you again. Uh, there's, a, there's a children's book that we read to our, to our kids and that you might be familiar with called Are You My Mother? Uh, you might have come across it before. It's the story of a little bird that hatches from an egg uh, and goes searching off to find its mother because the mother has gone off to find food and is not there at the nest when the bird comes out. And so he doesn't know what he's looking for. and He doesn't know what to look for. He just knows that he's looking for his mother. And so he walks up to a cat and says, are you my mother? The cat says, no. And so the little bird keeps looking, goes up to a dog and says, are you my mother? The dog says, no. And the baby bird keeps searching. He approaches a cow, a hen, um, a rusty old car, a piece of construction equipment. He yells up to a, to a plane. He yells out to a, to a boat, are you my mother? And none of them are his mother. Um, eventually, he's put back in his nest. His mother comes back. And it's a happy ending because he immediately recognizes his mother and knows who he is. We love stories that end like that. Good ending. Um, now, it's a fun little children's book, but I want to get, get ready. I'm about to completely over-spiritualize it and give it a, a new meaning that I'm sure the author did not intend. But I think that Are You My Mother, this little children's book, is a pretty profound look at what it means to be human. Think about this. The, the little bird comes into the world not knowing who he is. His identity is a mystery to him. He comes into the world asking this question, are you my mother everywhere? <laughs> and behind that question is really a, a, a range of deeper, more fundamental questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? Do I matter? What defines me? And he takes these questions out into the world looking for answers, looking for someone, looking for something to tell him who he is and where he belongs. Y'all, that's our story. That's the story of human beings born into the world outside of the garden, outside of the nest. We come into this world asking these deep fundamental questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what defines me? And we may not be asking those questions out loud. It may not be on the surface of our heads as we go throughout the day, but I promise you, these questions are running in the background. They're always operating beneath the surface, underneath the hood of our hearts, so to speak. And because we come into this world having run away from the nest, outside of the garden, we take these questions with us out into the world looking for answers in all of the wrong places. We may laugh at a little bird that goes to a cow and says, are you my mother? But y'all, we do the same thing when we go to a relationship or to a job, or to a success, or to a talent, or to a person, or to our sexuality, or to the mirror, and we say, will you tell me who I am? Will you tell me why I'm important and what defines me? We're all doing this. We all go out into the world searching for answers to this questions, whether we know it or not, and this week, this very week, this morning, whether we realize it or not, we wake up asking these questions. They're always operating underneath the hood of our hearts. I bet you can relate in some way to this little bird who's searching for answers out into a world. Somebody tell me who I am. 
In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul tells us something incredible. He tells us that he's learned how not to ask that question anymore. He tells us that he's found the way back to the nest, and he's inviting us back into the nest too. But notice, it's not like he's going to offer us a a, a quick silver bullet here. He's not going to give us a three-step formula. He says that it's something that he's learned, that it's a secret that he's been let in on, that he's on the inside of now. It's a secret that's made all the difference and that he can't, tell, and that he can't wait to tell the world. <laughs> so what is this secret? How does the gospel rescue us from our frantic search to try to find out who we are and what defines us? Well, let's read and find out. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read the whole passage, but we're especially going to focus on verses 10 to 13. This is God's Word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help from my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift... But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, come and minister the gospel to our hearts, we pray. Amen. So our passage this morning is at the very end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We've been making our way through it this spring. We're finally at the end, and we, we get here in these last few paragraphs uh, to one of the main reasons why Paul even wrote the letter in the first place. He's expressing his, his gratitude and his thanksgiving for this generous gift that the Christians in Philippi have sent to him. They collected a financial gift to give to Paul as a way of partnering with him in ministry and and helping in the spread of the gospel. Now, we know from other clues in the New Testament that these Christians in Philippi, they weren't wealthy. They were, in fact, very poor. They knew what it was like to have empty bank accounts and to be on the edge financially. They they knew poverty. (laughs) This is why Paul says, "I, I know that you wanted to help me before now, but you had no opportunity. In other words, he's saying, you wanted to help, but you had nothing to give. You had no no checks to write. There was nothing to give you. There's nothing for you to give. But it takes time. It takes months, maybe years for them to collect this gift 
uh, through which to partner with Paul in, in gospel ministry. They give it to Paul, and Paul's final words here are like his thank you note to them. He's expressing his gratitude and his joy, not only in the gift itself, but in the heart that's behind the gift. But he does choose an interesting way um, to express gratitude, doesn't he? (laughs) I mean, if we're honest, it's easy to read Paul's thank you note here as kind of a thank you, but but I didn't really need that. Thank you, but no thank you. I I appreciate the gesture, but you didn't really, you didn't have to do that. (laughs) How would it make you feel if you had scrimped and saved for months and years to give a gift like this to Paul, and he thanks you with I appreciate that, but I didn't really need that. That's how some people read what he says in verses 11 and 17, where, where Paul seems to gratify, uh, he, he seems to qualify his gratitude twice by saying, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need in verse 11. And then he says in verse 17, it's not that I seek this gift. It can easily sound like he's saying, I didn't really need this and I didn't really want you to do this, but thank you. Uh, is Paul ungrateful here? Is he callous? Does he just not know how to receive gifts? Um, well, no. In fact, it's the opposite. He's, he's saying that his, his gift and the heart behind that gift, he's incredibly grateful for it. He says he rejoices in it. It brings him joy. Think about all the things here in this situation here, though, that Paul could chalk up as a win, that Paul is celebrating and rejoicing in. I mean, first of all, on the surface level, the gift itself, the fact that they've partnered with Paul financially again, they have, he's, some of his needs have been met. This gift was to meet his own needs and the, and the needs of the poor Christians around him. And so Paul now knows some measure of financial stability that he didn't know before. That's the surface level. He's grateful for that. He, we can chalk that up to a win. But even deeper than that, more than that, he's, he's seeing the fruit of his ministry among these Christians in Philippi. These Christians here are demonstrating that the gospel has taken root in their hearts and is is blossoming into reality in their life, and we know that because they're giving their stuff away. (laughs) They're giving their money away. They get it. There's no surer sign than the gospel has taken root than than a person starts to part with their money. (laughs) And so it's a huge win for Paul. Everything here is a huge win for him. But here's what he's saying. He's saying all the things that I could chalk up as a win here, all the good things about this situation, not only about the gift, but also about what's behind the gift, none of it defines me. He's saying my identity is safely beyond the reach of all of the wins here and of all of the losses that I experience in life. He's saying, I need you to know that our relationship isn't established by this, but even more, that my identity is not attached to all the wins here in this situation. I need you to know that my identity is attached somewhere else. That's the secret that Paul's talking about here. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Contentment the rare jewel of Christian contentment. We see here that it's, it's, there's so much more to it than just being happy with what you have. Um, what we're going to see here is that it's so much more than that. So what is it and how is it possible? We're going to approach it here by, by looking at the search and the secret, the search for contentment 
and the secret of contentment. We're especially going to be focusing here on verses 10 through 13. So first of all, the search for contentment. Look again at these incredible words that Paul writes in verses 11 and 12. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and and hunger, abundance and need. Paul here is naming the fact that so much of life is lived on this spectrum between having what we want and not having what we want, between things going our way and things not going our way. So much of life is lived on the spectrum between the good life and the hard life. <laughs> and these three couplets or these pairs that he identifies here in the spectrum, now they, they identify this. He says, I know how to be brought low on one end of the spectrum and how to abound on the other side how to face plenty and how to face want, how to know abundance and how to know need. He's saying all of life is lived on this spectrum. And the soul-crushing reality is that outside of the garden, it just comes so natural and it just comes so easy to attach our identities to where we are on the spectrum, to whether we know plenty or want, whether we have what we want or we don't to attach our identity to our circumstances, (laughs) to equate how life is going with who we are, to allow our circumstances to serve as a reflection of our self-worth. It just comes so naturally. It just comes so easy outside of the nest. (laughs) Here's what I mean. When, When we attach our identity to our circumstances, to where we are on the spectrum between abundance and need, if we have a lot... The easy, the easy conclusion is just to say, well, I must be a lot. Or if we don't have much, it's easy to say, well, I must not be very much. When we attach our identity to our circumstances, it's impossible to experience success and not at some level conclude, well, I just must be a, a success. And the reverse, to experience failure and at some level to say, I must be a failure. And y'all, we know that there is a world of difference between saying, I failed and I am a failure. But when our identity is attached to our circumstances, attached anywhere on this spectrum, it's impossible not to draw that kind of conclusion. It's impossible for our identity, for our understanding of who we are and what, identi- and what defines us, not to rise and fall with our circumstances like a boat on the surface of the water. The search for identity. The search for contentment on this spectrum is exhausting and it is soul-crushing because there is no safe place on this spectrum for our identities to rest. When we look to our circumstances to tell us the story of who we are and why we matter and what defines us, there is no safe place on that spectrum. Now, you might be thinking, well, obviously I don't want to be on the hunger end of that spectrum, on, on the lack and emptiness into that spectrum. That's no fun. We know what it's like to experience failure and weakness, to not measure up. <laughs> and we, we don't like that, do we? But we can easily equate our self-worth and our identity with those things when we are attaching our identity to somewhere on this spectrum. And that's, a, that's the quick path to despair, isn't it? To look at our failures and all the ways that we don't measure up and to say, well, that must be a reflection of who I am. We would much rather be on the other side of the spectrum, right? (laughs) 
where we know plenty and where we know abundance. And I'm not just talking about physical possessions. I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about abundance in any kind of category. Abundance in terms of gifts, in terms of talents, in terms of relationships. Abundance in any kind of category. We would so much rather be on that end of the spectrum. But friends, the truth is, that's an even more dangerous threat to your identity than anything when you attach your identity to your abundance. Um, we can easily fall prey into thinking that this is really the secret to contentment, right? If I just get what I want, then I'm not going to want anything, and then I won't struggle with contentment, right? So that must be the secret. Just go get what you want, then you won't need anything, and voila, you don't struggle with contentment anymore. It's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that that's the pathway to contentment, isn't it? But Jesus was really clear on this point. He was really clear that this end of the spectrum, when we attach our identities to it, it is corrosive to our souls. <laughs> he was crystal clear about it. You remember what he says about the rich person. He says it's easier for, the, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what he means there is that someone who is camping out their identity on this end of the spectrum and identifying their self-worth with what they have, it's impossible for that person to see themselves as they really are, to feel their need, to know their own lack, and a person who, know, who, who knows no need is not going to need Jesus. Our abundance can blind us to who we really are. And so when we attach our identity to our circumstances, to anything on this spectrum between having and not having, we're believing a lie about who we really are. We're listening to a story that's telling us something less than who we really are. There is no safe place to rest our identities on this spectrum. There's a brilliant and pretty haunting portrayal of this in the movie Chariots of Fire. You remember the movie, it's about two uh, runners, Eric Little and, Her and Harold Abrams. They're both training to compete in the 1924 Olympic Games, and they're both incredible runners, both incredibly fast. But the movie shows us that there is a, they are a world apart from each other when it comes to how they understand their identities in terms of how they run. Eric Little, he, he loves to run. <laughs> he says that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure, and he's very fast. But he when he gets to the Olympic Games, he's able to voluntarily step away from his main event when it clashed with what he believed. He could step away from it because his identity wasn't attached to it. We could say that he had learned the secret between winning and losing, of knowing how to win and lose, knowing how to run or not run. But then we see Harold Abrams, the other runner, and his identity is firmly hooked into the spectrum into the spectrum of his circumstances. And there's this, there's this haunting scene where Abrams is preparing for one of his qualifying races. He's in the locker room with his friend, Aubrey, and he says this, Aubrey, you're my most complete man. You're compassionate, brave, kind. That's your secret. You're content. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I... I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing. 
Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. I've labored and I've rowed and I've bullied for this, but for what? Now in an hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. You see, winning or losing, (laughs) both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between, he was facing the reality that there's no safe place for his identity to rest there. That there's no safe place for his identity on that spectrum. What about you this morning? Where do you go to be told who you are? What have you attached your identity to? What good thing might have turned into an ultimate thing? Your bank account, your vocational success, a relationship, how you look in the mirror, some one person's opinion of you, maybe a dream that you have about who you're going to be in the future, or maybe looking back at the glory days when you were a somebody in the past. (laughs) What's telling you who you are? Maybe it's something darker. Maybe it's a failure or a sin pattern or a weakness something that you've done or something that was done to you. All of these places can be like, (laughs) we can be like the little bird in the story. We go to them and we say, will you tell me who I am? Where are you going to be told who you are? Because when we attach our identity to our circumstances, to anything on the spectrum, between having and not having, there's there's no safe place and, and you're going to believe a lie about who you are. But brothers and sisters and friends, there's good news. The good news is that the gospel invites us into a life that's lived on this spectrum, a life that's lived where we can fully embrace and engage and lean into all of the ups and the downs, all of the success and the failure, all of the the strengths and the weaknesses that, that characterize us. We can be fully present there, but not with our identities attached to it. (laughs) The good news is there is something else outside of the spectrum that's an infinitely safer place to attach our identities. It's something that can't change to someone who tells us the true story about who we are. This is the secret that Paul is inviting us into here. And he he tells us this in verses 11 and 12. He says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, all over the spectrum, I've learned the secret of facing both plenty and hunger, both abundance and need, having and not having. He says, says, I've learned the secret. I'm not attached to the spectrum anymore. He says, I still experience it, but I'm not attached to it. He says, I've learned how to experience success and abundance without my ego inflating. And I've learned how to experience failure and disappointment without my ego deflating. I've learned, how to, I've learned how to have everything without thinking of myself as a somebody. And I've learned how to have nothing without thinking of myself as a nobody. He says, I've learned that abundance can add nothing to me and that lack can, can take nothing away from me. I know how to be noticed and important. I know how to be ignored and insignificant and without any of that attaching itself to my self-worth. 
Paul says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I know how to be face-to-face with my weaknesses and with my successes without it reflecting on myself. Y'all, just stop there for a minute. Doesn't that sound incredible? Don't you want that? Doesn't that sound so liberating, so freeing, so, so appealing? Don't you yearn for, for that kind of stability, for that kind of safety and freedom? Can you imagine how generous we would be with our belongings if we truly, deep down, believe that our identity isn't attached to our belongings? Can you imagine how, how honest and vulnerable we'd be able to be about ourselves with other people if we really did truly believe deep down that our identity is not attached to how other people think about us? Can you believe the stress that would lift off of our shoulders if we truly believe that deep down our identity is not attached to if we succeed or fail? Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of life that Jesus is inviting you into in the gospel. This is the kind of soul-satisfying, life-giving contentment that Jesus offers us in the gospel. This is what true contentment looks like. But how is it possible? Well, Paul says, here's how it's possible. I'm going to tell you. It's a secret. (laughs) It's a secret. He says, I've learned the secret. Now, he doesn't call it a secret because it's something that God is trying to keep from us or or because there's some kind of inner circle in the Christian life where we have to be, you know, some, some kind of super Christian alpha spiritual people to kind of reach the inner circle and know the real secret behind it. That's not what he's talking about. He calls it a secret because it's something that people with their identities attached to the spectrum could never figure out by themselves, ever. It's something that we have to be led into. It's something that God has, it's a door that God has to open for us by his grace and let us into the secret of how to detach our identities from our circumstances completely by grace. He says, here's the secret, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's what I've learned, Paul says. That's the secret. Union with Christ. What's true of him is true about me. I'm connected to him, united to him with a tie that cannot fail. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. He says, whatever I have, whatever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. That's the secret. (laughs) That's the life-giving, soul-satisfying secret to contentment. That I am defined by the one who made me and the one who died for me and the one who loves me and will never let me go. That's the true story of who I am. And having everything cannot add to that and having nothing can take nothing away from that. That's true contentment. (laughs) I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Now notice what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying here that Jesus is giving you a blank check to just go do all the impossible, really hard things in life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how we sometimes interpret this verse. I can do do 90% of it, but when it gets to the 10% that's really hard at the very end, that's when I need a little shot in the arm. I can do that through Jesus who strengthens me. But that's not what Paul is saying here. What he's saying here is that I can do 
all things. In other words, I can engage in all circumstances. I can fully lean into all of my strengths and all of my weaknesses, all of my successes and all of my failures. I can fully be present there and do the really hard thing and not identify myself with them. I can do that in the one who gives me strength, who enlivens me and who invigorates me, who is the wind in my sails to live life, the one who makes me who I am. Brothers and sisters, this morning, you are invited for the first time or for the 10,000th time into that kind of deep, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching contentment. It's yours this morning through him. He's letting you into the secret. He's inviting you wherever you are on the spectrum this morning. Whether you know yourself as somebody who has nothing or whether you're fooled into thinking that you're somebody that actually has something, Jesus is saying, I, I want to tell you who you really are. Come to me and rest. Rest your identity in the one place in this whole universe that's actually safe. Come and let me tell you who you are. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please give us, give us the eyes to see you seeing us with a smile on your face. Help us to believe that if you tell us what we are, if you define us, then there is nothing else that can. Oh Lord, help us to rest under the shadow of your wing this morning and all of our days. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.